Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Joseph Kefala, was just a child when civil war broke out in Liberia and Sierra Leone. He was born in Sierra Leone, but lived with his father, who was a teacher over the border in Liberia. Then the war came to his town in 1989, and as a seven-year-old, he was imprisoned with his father. They were eventually released, and Joseph and his family spent much of the next decade on the run from a brutal civil war that seemed to follow them everywhere. Joseph recently published a memoir of these experiences titled Adama Louie, A Survivor's Journey from Civil Wars in Africa to Life in America. He is also the subject of a documentary film titled Retracing Geneva, The Story of a Witness, and this film is poised to debut at film festivals. Joseph is a Humanity in Action senior fellow, and the story of how he went from that prison in Liberia to this prestigious fellowship and on to law school in the United States is truly extraordinary. Needless to say, this is a very powerful episode. Uh, We kick off discussing an NGO he started along with another Humanity in Action senior fellow, Liat Kravchik. The NGO is called the Geneva Project, and it's dedicated to providing high-quality education for children in Sierra Leone. And Liat Kravchik is also the co-director and co-executive producer of that documentary, along with Anthony Mancilla. This is a really excellent conversation. I've posted links to... Joseph's book and the NGO on Global Dispatches Podcast.com. I encourage you to check both of them out. Uh, and if you have any questions about humanity in action, as you know, I'm a senior fellow in the organization as well. Please do feel free to send me uh, an email using the contact button on Global Dispatches Podcast.com. As you can see, uh, these senior fellows are, are up to pretty uh, amazing things. And now here is my conversation with Joseph Kefala, who I caught up with from Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, The school is almost complete. Our plan had always been to um, build a school that we will continue to somehow fund. Um, we have learned over the years about the things that can produce quality education in Sierra Leone. And we decided that in order to offer these quality services, we would have to build a school that we continue to supervise and manage. And so we are now building a secondary school in Robis in northern Sierra Leone, 
and uh, we hope that this school will be free of charge and it will be a girls' school. It will be a very small school because we want um, the school to have everything that is needed to enhance quality education. So there will be free textbooks, uh, the toilet facilities will be great, uh, the furniture will be wonderful because we want uh, the future students to walk into a room and feel dignified. Um, Liat and I have talked a bit about dignity. Uh, in many international human rights documents, you come across the word human dignity, uh, but not very many institutions have emphasized that, especially in Africa. And we believe that one of the places where we need to elevate human dignity uh, is learning space. Uh, we want the learning space to reflect uh, human dignity and to promote human dignity. So we are putting a lot of emphasis on providing a dignified space for learning. The school is now almost completed. Um, uh, soon enough, we're now working on electricity and providing water supply. Uh, so we're almost done with that. Have, and, uh, we're looking forward to running it. Have you experienced, um, and I'm curious here, that it's easier to raise money for like the brick and mortar of building a school than it is to, say, uh, raise money to help design a curriculum or fund teachers um, or things be, that um, sort of help sustain a school and make a school uh, high quality as opposed to just sort of building the school? Well, in our experience, in fact, the reverse is uh, often the case. Uh, most people do not want to fund construction. Uh, every time you go to fundraise and you say we want to fundraise to build a school, uh, folks do not want to put their money into that because uh, construction takes a while, um, especially uh, for a school. Uh, and not only the construction stage, but to build a school and run it, uh, people do not see the immediate benefit of, say, a relief service mm. um, because uh, education takes a long time before you can actually see the rewards. Uh, so most people do not want to fund that. Uh, but we are resilient and uh, persistent in our efforts, and uh, we hope that uh, we can do this. Uh, most of my life is sort of devoted to achieving this dream for young Sierra Leoneans because I myself have benefited a lot from education. And I believe that if we want to engage in the development of our country, uh, one of the fundamental level, levels of that process will be educating the children so that they can become the builders of the nation. Uh, it is difficult. Fundraising to build can be very difficult, but um, we remain um, committed to the effort. And and I'd love to to talk about your life and, and your experience. And you know, as you noted, education does seem to play a really important role in in your early life. Uh, I saw the documentary; it was really powerful. I suppose it's probably uh, going to be filmed in in various film festivals uh, in the coming year. So so congratulations on that. Thank you. 
Um, so, so let's talk about your life. And, and I should note, you also just uh, published a memoir, uh, which contains a lot of the stories that we're about to discuss. And I'll post a link to that on the website. Um, but, but let's start where, where it all begins. So where were you born? And when were you born? So I was born in Sierra Leone in 1982. Uh, I was born in a small town called Pendembu. Uh, but when I was a child, I moved to Liberia to live with my father. Uh, so I lived in Liberia up until 1989 when the civil war started. And uh, I was arrested there by the National Patriotic Front of Liberia and thrown in jail with my father. So, mm-hmm. and, and your father was a, a teacher, is that right? He, he went to yes. Liberia to, to work in, in schools there and you went to go live with him. And, and, it, and you know, the, it's across the border from each other. For people who are not familiar with the, uh, the geography of the area, from where you were born in Sierra Leone to where you grew up in Liberia is not, you know, huge distances. No, I, I grew up in Vonjima, Vonjima, Liberia, which is just across the border from Sierra Leone. Uh, and what did your father teach? My father taught history and geography. Uh, and Back were... then when people actually studied geography. <laughs> hey, it's, it's my favorite subject. And I suspect it's probably your favorite <laughs> subject, too. We're us, us humanity and action nerds uh, like the social sciences, I'd say. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so so growing up in, in Liberia in the early days before the Civil War, like what are some of your memories from, from that, that era? Liberia before the war was a very peaceful country. Uh, there were a lot of emphasis on community. As a child, I felt like I belonged to all of my adult neighbors and uh, people took care of children. And um, I was going to school. I was a very happy child. I lived with my father who was a very easygoing man. So I was free really to do whatever I liked most of the time. Uh, he just made sure that I had everything I needed and I was doing well in school. Uh, so it was a very happy childhood and uh, it was always happier when we went back to Sierra Leone for holidays. Um, so, you know, one could not have foreseen the kind of brutality that would later occur in these countries uh, based on the early days of its um, development. Uh, we had a Good time living in Vonjama, so, a city in between Sierra Leone, Guinea. So it, it was a great place to meet for a lot of business people. So really vibrant town. So so things changed though pretty fast in in 1989. Can you uh, walk me through what your memory is of? that time and how um, the situation turned from, it sounds like a fairly idyllic experience to one of, you know, unimaginable horror very quickly, it seemed. Right. Um, So in 1989, the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, led by Charles Taylor, invaded the country. Uh, So, I mean, as a child, I couldn't really comprehend most of what uh, the fighting was about, I would learn most of it later. Uh, but what really happened is suddenly our communities were transformed into violent communities. People were killing each other. People were suspicious of each other. And then eventually the economic community of West African states intervened in, in the conflict. 
and Charles Taylor decided to arrest and imprison all West Africans living in, in Liberia. Uh, my father was arrested with uh, some of my uncles and eventually we joined them in prison. So I was probably one of two or three children uh, in, in, at the prison. So, uh, so that is exactly how my life was transformed overnight from a very normal childhood to an abnormal existence. What do you remember from the first um, few days in, in that prison with your father? I had to learn a lot quickly when we got to the prison. Um, uh, first of all, I didn't know why we, why we were there. Um, my sister and I were put in a cell, and I remember the first night, it was really dark. Um, I leaned against the wall, and there was another prisoner who was crying rather intensely. Uh, from his voice, one could tell that he was an old man. And he was crying um, from extreme pain. And he cried until the early hours of the morning when he stopped crying. And that is when he died. Uh, in the morning, I saw the rebels come and take his body away. Um, that was my first contact, really, with, with death. And then from there on, I witnessed a lot of torture of, of the adults. But in between that, the rebels also allowed the adults to, to pray. So as part of that very brutal memory is also the memory of my, my father and his friends, some of whom were my teachers, uh, singing religious songs very early in the morning to pray. Um, you know, one of the songs I remember from those days is, I surrender unto Jesus. Um, Every time I hear that song, I think of those people back then in the day, you know, literally surrendering themselves to the only hope they had, which uh, was their God. So those are the things I remember from then. Like, and, and, and how did your, your father sort of try to explain to you what was going on? My father always tried his best to make things seem normal. Um, he always promised that everything was going to change and we were going to go back home um, in order really to divert my mind from uh, the existing horror that we were living through, uh, even though that, you know, at that time was very difficult to do. You, you cannot conceal the kind of... Uh, naked brutality that was happening in Liberia at the time. Uh, so even though he tried his best to really sort of shield me from, from that horror, uh, he couldn't succeed because all around me was torture and killings and uh, shooting and drugs uh, because many of the child soldiers were really on, constantly on drugs. And, and, and it's worth maybe providing some, some political context, if we can step back and, and talk a little bit about this kind of overlapping conflict between, uh, with Charles Taylor and Sierra Leone and, um, uh, and, and Liberia. This is one that the use of, of child soldiers was prevalent. Uh, it's, you know, one that's often associated with like blood diamonds, particularly in, in Sierra Leone. Um, could you, I guess, sort of, 
explain for people who are not as familiar with this era and, and these overlapping civil wars, what, what exactly was going on? Like, what was the political context in which your imprisonment and, and the subsequent civil wars erupted? Right. Um, so before these wars, I mean, these were civil wars that were based on the, you know, gradual deterioration of society. When I was in the States, uh, I used to tell people that what happened in both Sierra Leone and Liberia at the time, if it happened anywhere, there would be civil war. Um, food prices were going up. Um, civil servants weren't getting paid. Schools were getting shut down and, uh, you know, there was suffering everywhere. You know, people were dying from minor diseases such as malaria and cholera. Uh, so at that time, in both Liberia and Sierra Leone, the revolution was needed. Uh, but, you know, what one could have hoped for was a democratic revolution. But, uh, you know, even people like Charles Taylor had good intention when they first entered Liberia. But as the Civil War got out, out of hand, uh, uh, that is when they started to recruit children to do the fighting. And because these were children, in order to motivate them to fight, they had to drug them. And uh, in Liberia, there was a special unit known as the Small Boys Unit. Uh, these were children on drugs who were told to obey before questions. Um, I think they put a duty before Command, uh, duty before complaint. So when you were told to kill a person, you killed them before you asked why. Mm. Um, so then in, when Sierra Leone got involved in the peacekeeping mission, Charles Taylor, who was very angry at that, decided in his own words that Sierra Leone had to taste the bitterness of war. So he decided to help another revolutionary by the name of Fodesanko mm -hmm. to form an organization they called the Revolutionary United Front and invade Sierra Leone. But he invaded Sierra Leone with soldiers borrowed from Charles Taylor. After a while, those soldiers decided to return to Liberia, so leaving him no choice but to recruit children. So he ended up recruiting a whole bunch of children um, using the same process, drugs and uh, AK-47s, and basically telling them to go to war. Uh, there were no special instructions. You have to go fight, kill the enemy. And uh, I've often described the situation as a war of all against all in a struggle for nothing, because at the end of the day, we were really fighting for nothing. And whoever held an AK-47 was in command. And I have to imagine, as a young boy, a 9, 10-year-old at the time, you were probably seen as like a potential recruit, a potential combatant. Yes. And I have often had to explain that situation why I was never a child, so yeah, even though I grew up in um, both of these conflicts. Uh, I think one of the major reasons is that my mother... Uh, is a very strong woman. So she never stopped looking at even the child soldiers as children. So every time we were in a town that was captured by the rebels, if we had food, he fed the child soldiers as well. And then the commanders, whenever they needed food, 
if we had food, we shared it with them. But then she was very, very restrictive um, about her children. Um, whenever There are a few times the rebel commanders would say, uh, old mother, uh, we think these children would be great soldiers. And my mother would say, no, 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 no. If you want a soldier, take me instead. Mm. And uh, usually, luckily for us, they would just laugh about it and move on. But I, you know, I've written in a memoir that most of my life is I have to now interpret in various ways. And I don't know whether to call it luck or I had some sort of divine protection. Uh, but really, there was nothing special that uh, protected us, my brother and I, from the rebels, really. So, so how did you leave that prison in Liberia? So my father was invited to teach in Liberia by a Catholic school that belonged to uh, the St. Joseph's Parish. Uh, so from the day that we were arrested, the priest and the nuns were constantly pleading for the rebels to let us go. Um, after months and months of pleading, uh, eventually one day the rebels came to my father and said, you are free to go. Uh, so we left the prison, but they told us that we know that you are Sierra Leoneans and you would probably be trying to go to Sierra Leone. We just want to inform you that we have been enlisted to fight in Sierra Leone. Uh -huh. At the time, the Sierra Leonean war had not yet started. But we had been living in Liberia for so long in the conflict that uh, people who escaped Vonjama had told my mother and the rest of my family that we were dead. Uh, they had already conducted funeral rites and buried us in their minds. Uh, so my father was very uh, insistent that we go back to Sierra Leone by all means possible. Uh, even though at the time all the vehicles were destroyed and all the roads were dug out, uh, my father decided that we walk gradually back to Sierra Leone, which we did in March 1991. How long did that walk take? It took uh, several days, um, almost a week, I think. Uh, we spent a few days in, in some towns along the way, mm -hmm. uh, but we gradually made it just across the border. And luckily for us, one of my mother's relatives work in a town in across the border on the Sierra Leone side called um, Quendu. When we got to Quendu, he hired a vehicle that then took us to Pendembu, where I was born. So so what was that reunion with your mother and, and your family like, they having thought that you had died in, in the Liberian Civil War? Right. I mean, it was... And my grandmother was still alive. Um, she had indeed suffered a lot because I was uh, her favorite grandson. Uh, so when we got to Sierra Leone, uh, the many people have this belief that um, when people die far away from home, their ghosts reappear to their family. Uh, so when we actually got to Sierra Leone, they thought we were ghosts. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I always joke that, you know, they... You know, there's a story in the Bible of unbelieving Thomas uh, poking the wounds of Jesus in order to believe that that was indeed Jesus. 
So I, I, I say to my friends that uh, after a while, my parents realized that if I was a ghost, I was indeed an unholy ghost because I was still a troublesome child. Uh, okay. My mother was speechless for days. She just kept looking at us and crying. And people came from all over town constantly to actually look at us and make sure we were indeed alive. So I mean, what's what's um, troubling, I suppose, is that the, the joy that your family experienced, that your father experienced, that you experienced at that moment of being reunited, must have been tempered by the realization of what the soldiers had told you, which that they are planning an invasion of Sierra Leone, and that you soon may be caught up in conflict. Right, right. Um, especially for my father, because, you know, in, in, in the Sierra Leonean setting as, as a husband, he needed to find an immediate solution. Uh, what shall we do? Uh, where can we go? Uh, and uh, so we decided to, to wait it out. And indeed, on March 23rd, I think, uh, 1991, the rebels invaded Sierra Leone. Uh, so they weren't kidding at all. Uh, at which point my father and I knew exactly how bad it could become. Uh, but the rest of my family had never seen um, a rebel war. So they were a little confused about what may ensue. Uh, and then secondly, because we had just come from Liberia, uh, most of the people in the community thought that we came on a reconnaissance movement for the rebels. Uh, so, you know, my father was sometimes accused of bringing the rebels to Sierra Leone. And, this year, and, so, and those yeah, rebels was, probably like knew you two because they held you in, in jail for so long. And, and so there was like some familiarity there. Yes. In fact, I write in, in my memoir about, you know, I basically philosophize about the situation. So at one point in Liberia, some of the child soldiers who were in charge of the prison wanted to kill us at any time. Um, they were given the command. But then when we met them again in Sierra Leone, these same rebels who could have killed us at any given time in Liberia were protecting us against the rebels, other rebels in Sierra Leone. Mm. Uh, I remember one time I was almost going to get killed by a child soldier who wanted a uh, a coconut my brother and I had picked, and I refused to give it to him because, you know, we were children, and I felt it was unjust that I should suffer for a coconut and just hand it over to him. Uh, so I was being very, you know, stubborn because I thought the situation was rather unjust. So this kid pulled out his AK-47 and was about to shoot me, and then he was stopped by another child soldier I knew in Liberia, who was now a grown fellow. And he basically said, stop. And the kid stopped and he said, you know, drop it. And uh, that is how we lived that day. But I had no doubt that he would have killed me. How do you, looking back, sort of make sense and, and process a situation, an experience like that? I think what those experiences have done to me is give me renewed faith in humanity. Uh, humans, I believe, are innately good, though they could be uh, turned into evil. 
And uh, so that has given me this obligation to work towards uh, peace in human society because I believe that people are reduced to evil sometimes because they have no other options. We, if we apply the same efforts we apply to war, uh, to peace, I think we can make a lot of um, uh, uh, um, stable advances in our communities um, and actually achieve the peace that we seek. Uh, so I believe that we should work more on that area. I, I, well, I'm, I'm sort of stunned to, to hear you say that, uh, if only because what you experienced, what you witnessed was humanity at its worst, at its nadir, at its most brutal. And, and you know, this, this civil war is one known for amputations and child soldiers and, and just rampant human rights abuses and, and brutality, yet you still believe that we humans are, are fundamentally good. It, it, like, where does that belief come? I mean, is, is that sort of like a, a religious conviction? Like, wh where does that come from? Well, it's, I think before religion, I think it's scientific, it's biological. We, we, we come into the world scientifically proven as a tabula rasa. And I believe that everything we learn is inscribed upon us. So how about we put a little bit more effort into inscribing peace? Um, and because we've not done that, and this takes a lot, you know, you have to create proper governments that care about the people that votes it. And uh, you have to create institutions that cater to genuine human needs. And when we fail in those aspects, we create these animosities in society that then sort of unfolds into hatred and violence. So if we take that tabula rasa from the very beginning and uh, inscribe peace upon it, I believe we can achieve peaceful societies. That's um that 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 that's 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 it's like very profound actually coming coming from you to to hear that and knowing what you experienced. Um, can you can you talk a, a little bit about those ensuing years? Um, I, I know you, you moved a lot in 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 the time after which the rebels from Liberia had invaded uh, Sierra Leone. What uh, can you talk me a, a little through like what what your experience was, where you ended up moving, and and how you ended up surviving that period. Right. So when the rebels eventually uh, invaded uh, Pendembu, we lived with them for a while. Um, people were being killed every day. Those who weren't killed by rebels were dying from starvation. And, uh, but we had nowhere to go. So we lived with them for a while until the government in Freetown was overthrown by uh, a military coup. And the soldiers decided to concentrate on really fighting the rebels and eventually reach Pendembu where we were with the rebels, that is when we decided to escape. Uh, we didn't really know where we were going. We were woken up in the middle of the night uh, by gunshots and rocket-propelled grenades. And uh, my father said, well, we have to go. I remember he turned to me and said, Mr. Man, we're running again. And then, you know, basically telling me that uh, you know, he was looking at his child who has suffered a lot with him and uh, realizing that the suffering has not yet ended. And then my younger brother, Francis, turned to my mother and said, Mom, are we no longer going to go to school? I always make fun of him for that. I'm like, people are running for their lives and all you could think of is going to school. <laughs> uh, and then that morning, it was a raining season. 
Um, it was raining heavily. And one of my cousins had just given birth uh, a few days earlier. So we had this baby and my grandmother, who was probably in her 70s, uh, we decided to run with thousands of other people. We ran through the jungle for the whole day and eventually made it to a small village on the Sierra Leonean Liberian border. Uh, my grandmother couldn't make it further than that, so we decided to stay in that village for months. Uh, we stayed there for months. The rebels were there, but the government soldiers had not yet attacked that area. We stayed there until my grandmother was fully recovered, and then we went across the border back to Liberia. At this point, we were really choosing the lesser of two evils. And at that point, there were ECOMOG's peacekeepers in Liberia. ECOMOG is the peacekeeping force of ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States. So we lived in a small town on the Liberian side called Vahu uh, for months until a conflict broke out between the rebels and and these are the National Patriotic Front of Liberia rebels and the ECOMOG forces. It was two to three days of fighting. Um, a lot of peacekeepers were killed. After that conflict, my father decided to move back to Vonjama, which was relatively stable. Uh, he went to Vonjama, my mother followed, and then later uh, they took us, the kids. But my grandmother still could not proceed beyond Vahon, so she stayed there, and unfortunately, that is where she died. Um, that was very devastating for me because I was really attached to my grandmother since I was a kid. Uh, I was born premature, so my parents thought I would not live, so they basically left me with my grandmother, who really um, saved my life. So as a child, I clung to her. When I first went to kindergarten and they asked me what my name was, I said Joseph Geneva because my grandmother's name is Geneva. Uh, so we lived in Vunjama. And, and I, I should Vunjama. say, I, I should say the the um, school that you're building is is being built in her in her memory, and and the name of your NGO is is the Geneva Project. Yes, it is the Geneva Project, but uh, that was purely coincidental. I think we registered the organization because it started off as a girl scholarship and I wanted to give it a, you know, Sierra Leonean girl's name that uh, people can recognize. Mm. And then halfway through the uh, uh, documentation, Liat, um, my colleague turned to me and said, isn't that your grandmother's name as well? I was like, yeah, well, that may be so. <laughs> uh. um, so that was purely inadvertent, mm-hmm. um, but it's good now. Uh, so then we lived in Von Jamal again for months until it was invaded by another group of rebels who were fighting against Chastiller. Mm. Uh, they, they attacked the town and uh, we basically ran out uh, without direction until we made it to the Guinean border. And uh, the Guineans decided that the women and children can get across the river, but the men cannot get in because they didn't know who was a rebel and who was not. Uh, eventually, we got into Guinea, but my father stayed across um, the border for some days until the United Nations High Commission for Refugees got involved. And then um, the men were eventually allowed to get across. Uh, we lived in a refugee camp for a while, and my father got a job teaching at a refugee school. And one day during one of his lessons, he just collapsed. And uh, my mother 
and all of the children were up a mountain breaking rocks for a wealthy man who was building a story building in, in Gekidu, Guinea. And uh, a messenger came and told us that uh, my father had just collapsed in class. And by the time my mother got there, he, he had died. Uh, so we ended up living in a refugee camp with our mother uh, until 1998, when I left to live with my uncle in Freetown in order to continue my education at the Sierra Leone Grammar School. Uh, even though Sierra Leone was still undergoing a civil war, Freetown was relatively stable, but I was supposed to attend school on January 6, 1999, and that was the very day that the rebels reinvaded Freetown, and uh, we were again uh, under rebel control for months, um, and uh, eventually when the Ekomog forces kicked the rebels out of Freetown, I started going to school sometime in 1999. And, and that's how you ended up at this very prestigious uh, school in, in Freetown. How did you like, just get in the school? How yes. did you, having, having sort of ran for most of your adolescence, having experienced this unbelievable trauma, including the, the death of, of your father with whom you were so close, like, how, how did it transpire that, that you were able to attend this extremely prestigious school? Yes. Um, I had done really well at the refugee schools in Guinea. And uh, so when I came to Freetown with my papers, my uncle decided that it was fitting for me to attend the Sierra Leone Grammar School. Uh, we went to see the principal, uh, who is a very strict and uh, level-minded human being, he was a little hesitant about accepting me because I had not taken the national entrance exam, which is the exam required to enter senior secondary school in Sierra Leone. But he decided to um, consult the examination council, and when he was given the go-ahead, he allowed me to start school at the Sierra Leone Grammar School, where I also did very well. And after three years, I took the West African uh, secondary school exam examination. And uh, I did well on that examination. And that is how I ended up at uh, the Red Cross Nordic United World College in Norway. So, so you really thrived in, in, in this environment. I mean, having, having stopped uh, running, you, you really did very well academically. Yes. Uh, my father had always placed uh, extreme value in education. Um, earlier on, he made us understand that he may not have anything to give us, but uh, if we take our education seriously, we may not need him. And uh, so after all that suffering, I said to myself, what would be what would make me achieve the things that I want to achieve? in the Sierra Leone of the future. And I realized that the only way I can do anything is to first take my education seriously and prepare myself for uh, the leadership of the future Sierra Leone because the country was already in ruin. Uh, so when I went to the grammar school, I took everything by stage. I knew that if I succeeded at the grammar school, I will succeed anywhere else and so on and so forth. 
So when I did wear the grammar school, I got a scholarship to study in Norway. And uh, after two years in Norway, I got another scholarship to study in the States. Can you tell me what it was like landing in Norway that that first time, which is literally like the wealthiest country in the world? And, and Sierra Leone at the time was one of the poorest countries in, in the world. What was what were those like first moments in, in Norway like? Yes, I mean, I mean, I told you earlier that, you know, certain things in life have restored my faith in humanity and my experience of leaving Sierra Leone to live in Norway was one of those experiences that actually has restored my faith in what humans can do. Uh, I, I used to tell Liat that uh, going from uh, Freetown to Flecker, Norway was like rising out of hell to heaven. Uh, without going through purgatory. <laughs> I was raised Catholic. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that same year, the United Nations Human Development Index, and the year was 2002, uh, ranked Sierra Leone as basically a hell on earth, uh, the worst place to live on earth. And Norway was number one on yeah. that ranking. So basically, I left the worst country to the best overnight. Um, in Sierra Leone, I used to worry about gunshots and where I'm going to get my next meal and how am I going to study and whether I will live for another minute. In Norway, I was fed three times a day and I was going to school with kids from all over the world and uh, we were living in a tranquil society. Um, and it always make, made me think to myself, why isn't the rest of the world living like the Norwegians? And uh, that is one of the primary reasons that I devoted my life to uh, doing what I do now. Um, so where, where in the States did you end up? Like what school? So when I left... Uh, Fleck and Norway, I went to Skidmore College in upstate New York, Saratoga yeah, Springs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could, I, I guess I had gotten used to the snow, so I needed more. <laughs> uh, and, and so you, you got uh, a scholarship to, to go to uh, Skidmore for, and, and you have like a, a BA from Skidmore? Yes, I went to Skidmore undergrad to study international relations and uh, uh, law and society. So was it at Skidmore that you did the Humanity in Action program? Yes, it was my junior year at Skateboard that I joined Humanity in Action. What, what, what program did you do? Can you tell a little bit about that experience I, I, there? Yeah. So, so, you know, I, the first time I heard about Humanity in Action, like most things I said to myself, this organization should be part of the experience of most young people. So I applied as a sophomore. But um, I wasn't accepted the first time, so I, but I still thought, this is an organization I want to be part of. Uh, so I, you know, I applied the second time and uh, I, I eventually got in. Um, what, so, what program did you do? Uh, so I did the Danish program. Okay. Um, I went to Denmark and uh, I lived at the University of Copenhagen and then um, participated in the program. It was wonderful. You know, it was great to go back to Scandinavia. What what did that program sort of mean to you at, at that moment in your uh, sort of life as a, as a student, but also in sort of the, your overall kind of 
development. And, you know, I, I, I asked because it was at least for me and I had a, you know, a very tranquil uh, childhood, uh, transformative, uh, exposing me to like different cultures, different ideas, but, and different individuals. Uh, but here you are bringing all this experience with you. I have to imagine, um, that the sort of exchanges that happen in your, uh, program were, were particularly profound. Yes, I think humanity in action helped me solidify my beliefs and understandings about life. Uh, and also what was important about it is I was doing it, doing it with other young people, uh, people whose life experiences were mostly different from mine. And what I wanted to do then was to bring my life stories as you know, an actual story for some of the theoretical things they were reading about and sharing. Uh, I remember one of the greatest aspects of the program was actually starting in Washington, D.C. for the American program and going to the Holocaust Museum. You know, for most people, our generation, the Holocaust is part of history. You read about it, you go to the museum, you see... Uh, things from that time and maybe testimony from some of the survivors of the concentration camp. Um, but even with that, um, I thought uh, people needed modern perspective. And that was also great about the museum because they also had an exhibit on Rwandan genocide at the time. Mm. And, you know, I wanted my colleagues and friends to understand that we still have work to do. Uh, after the Holocaust, the United Nations said never again. After Rwanda, the United Nations said never again. Then there was Bosnia and then Sierra Leone and then Liberia and so on and so forth. Um, so what Humanity in Action did for me was provide room for me to be part of a collective of young people who actually are interested not only in the theory of these things, but concrete actions to transform their world. And uh, that is what was uh, very important for me. At the time, there was a lot of Islamophobia, for instance, in Denmark, but we were also there because Denmark was one of the places that uh, rescued Jews. Uh, so here is this country receiving praises for its humanitarian action during one of the most horrific moments of human existence, but yet it could not live with Muslims. Mm. Uh, so those were the things that really inspired me uh, during my time with humanity in action. Uh, and, and you ended up going to law school, is that right? Yes. I ended up going to Vermont Law School, another code-seeking... Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sensing a, a theme there, Joseph, yeah. Yes, um, I went to Vermont Law School to study international law because, I mean, this is my personal belief that most of human society is transformed by legality one way or another. And I wanted to understand the international legal instrument governing us as humans generally. Uh, where can we go when there is a genocide? Where can we go when there's crimes against humanity? And these are the things that I wanted to understand because eventually I really want to be at the forefront of um, preventing 
these mass scale violence against uh, humanity. And and, and, uh, and yeah. I think international law can be a vital instrument in achieving that dream. And and apparently also uh, education uh, as as well. So what? Right. Um, so what? So so I know we, we start off talking about where things stand with uh, the Geneva Project. It sounds like things are are moving forward, and you're you're soon will will open the the schools. Um, what's what's next for you? Do you think like what what are you? I know I'm reaching you in in Freetown right now. Are you spending most of your time today these days like working on the schools? Well, primarily, I had been working on finishing this memoir, which is uh, out today, and then also spending some time working on the school. Once the school is completed and is running, the Geneva Project as an institution can then concentrate on fundraising to help run the school. And then eventually, for my own profession, my aim is is in the near future to find a college where I can teach international law. And uh, hopefully the, the, the I film. I am following in my yeah. father's footsteps. Yeah, the, the, the professor. Um, <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. And and hopefully, the, you know, the film, which, which I said is really very well done, very powerful, will will aid in those those fundraising efforts. Yes, that was the idea behind um, the film. Uh, we needed something that can spread the word about what we're doing and to help us fundraise for the school. Uh, we will finish building the school. Um, we will have to invigorate our efforts in fundraising to run it. Uh, well, Professor, thank you so much for, for your time. <laughs> this was this was great. This was a really this is this was this uh, I'm I'm frankly impressed that you're able and I, I suppose having written the memoir was a way to process all these things that happened to you. Um, and all these experiences that you lived through and, and that process of writing the memoir must have been in some ways cathartic. Yes, it's, um, uh, it, was, it was really timing. Um, it took me a while to settle down to do this. And I called it Adama Louis, which is really this men, they believe that we are all children or descendants of Adam, Adam and Eve. Uh, so, you know, the philosophy in the book is to try to make, you know, those who my audiences understand that at the end of the day, we are all what Desmond Tutu like to call in the bundle of life together. And um, we have to live it as once. Uh, or most of what we are is artificial. Uh, we create hunger. We create war. Um, so I think if we want to solve these problems, we can do it together. It's not impossible. All right. Well, we'll the just, only thing we cannot wait for is for manners to fall from heaven. I don't think that's going to happen. No, we, we have to make our own mana. Yes. Uh, Joseph, thank you. This was, this was great. This was inspiring. Thank you very much. I am so grateful that you decided to do this. And let's meet up at some Humanity in Action reunion in the near future. Yes, I'll let you know when I'm back in the States. Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Joseph. Wow, that that was, uh, as I said, that was, that was a powerful conversation. Profound. Thank you all for listening. Um, if you are so moved, and I hope you are, please 
do consider leaving a review on iTunes, and I will uh, in kind mail you a sticker as a token of my uh, appreciation. I have some fancy new Global Dispatches podcast stickers I, I just had made and, and sent to me, and I'd love to send one to you. Uh, so please do write a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast to tell everyone why it is that you you listen to Global Dispatches podcast uh, week in, week out. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.